and Fucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G., and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Topical cream, a pod listener's dream, unfucking the news. What? Oh, this fucking guy, man. No, it's just a topical cream. It'll be a short one. This script is 4,000 fucking words, man. God damn it. She's the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. Basic white guy who started a podcast. But it's fun because he curses. All the fucking the Republic. Energy prices continue to climb. Energy stocks continue to climb. You think there's any end in sight to that trend? We're just beginning, you know, I, I, we like to argue this is the, the first innings of a commodity super cycle. And it's not just oil and gas, it's metals, mining, it's agriculture, because, you know, the sector has suffered from a decade plus of underinvestment. And I want to emphasize, even though Exxon's reaching, you know, a cyclical high right now, the reality is the amount of money in this space is still very, very small. Um, we haven't seen the rotation. The only money that's really coming in the space is share buyback. So, yeah, you're going to look at pictures that show the rotation of energy up and, you know, tech down. But the reality is we haven't seen a big influx of capital into this space. Um, so, you know, are, are you too late you know, in, in this space? Absolutely not. It's just beginning. This is how Wall Street talks about the energy sector. Sure, there are platitudes about pain at the pump and policy measures to bring down prices, but there are a few key points from even this brief clip that tell you everything you need to know about what the fuck is going on with gas prices. This was Jeff Curie, Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities Research, speaking on CNBC's Squawk Box, addressing the surge in energy prices around the globe. It's a solid interview, actually, and we've linked it in show notes to understand the different factors weighing on prices right now. Max, been there, done that, haven't we? Didn't we cover crude oil? Didn't we talk through the market manipulation angle already? Well, apparently, literally no one in the pundit class or general news media got the fucking memo, so here we are again. Also, in show notes this week, I said we'd be doing a topical cream because I thought this would be short and pithy. Of course, shit happens, and now it's a bit longer than I intended. But it's not quite a full unfucking either. So consider this a partial unfucking topical bridge creamy quickie episode. You are so gross. I know. Anyway, here we go. My guess is you've heard one or all of the following factors as the reason why prices at the pump are so fucking high. Biden's stimulus and recovery plan gave too much money to consumers, so we're spending like assholes. It's our fault. Everyone is traveling again and living their lives, so demand is out of control and outstripping supply. Again, our fault. Biden's war of words with the fossil fuel industry during his campaign magically made prices go up. So it's Biden's fault. The war in Ukraine. Putin's fault. The uneven global recovery from the pandemic has impacted refineries and capacity. China's fault. Biden has handcuffed U.S. oil and natural gas production by killing projects like the Keystone Pipeline. Biden's fault. Only one of these is true. And only partially so. 
So the goal here is to prep you so you can summarily dismantle each one of these talking points and squarely point the finger at who's to blame. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members, Corinne G, Jennifer S, G Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Asshole, Awesome A, and Asoke. In the beginning of the opening clip, Curie talks about how the sector has suffered from a lack of investment for decades. That might sound like there's a lack of investment into the businesses themselves, like for equipment, machinery, and labor, but that's not what he's talking about. So let's translate what that means. Essentially, what he's saying is that the energy sector has been ignored by Wall Street money relative to huge growth in areas like tech, and that even the recent influx of capital into energy shares is small relative to the earnings share that it has on the S&P. In other words, he's suggesting that energy stocks are still undervalued and underfunded because he believes that the sector is only at the beginning stages of a massive comeback. That is not good news for you, for me, or for the planet. So energy stocks are a good buy. So what? How does this translate to what really matters to us? The price of goods, transportation, inflation in general? The short answer is, it's not good. The real kick in the ass is that it also doesn't have to be this way. In our peak oil episode, which we re-released in conjunction with this piece to provide some context, we walked through the history of oil as both a commodity and a currency and how the price of it no longer reflects true market forces. Here's a quick recap. In the olden days, crude oil was difficult and expensive to extract from the ground, and there was a consensus that proven reserves were finite and we would therefore run out at some point in the future. This was the theory of peak oil, referred to as the Hubbard Curve, named for the geologist who first did the math in the 1950s. All things being equal, with available information at the time, we would have hit peak oil sometime in the 1970s and then the world's supply would begin to decline over a period of decades. Okay? Got it. Great. Then a few things happened. The oil companies got really, really good at finding oil and pulling it out of the ground. A true technological revolution. And then they found it in the ocean and the tar sands literally everywhere. Suddenly, supply wasn't an issue. So as the global economy grew, U.S. consumption went off the fucking rails, and petrostates from Venezuela to Saudi Arabia and Equatorial Guinea to Norway and the U.S. to Russia were awash in petrodollars. And speaking of dollars, the most effective way to track the price of oil considering it was being pumped around the world was to market in U.S. dollars. So here are the two most important takeaways from this era. Up to, and including this period of time, the only two economic determinants of price were supply and demand and the strength of the dollar. And here's why. If oil is priced in dollars and the dollar is strong, it takes fewer dollars to buy a barrel of oil. Likewise, if the dollar is weak, it requires more of them to buy a barrel. Historically, there's an inverse relationship. So if supply is meeting demand, meaning oil companies are pumping, refining, distributing, and storing enough oil to meet consumption demand in the broader market, then the value of the dollar will be the driver of any real change to the price of oil. On the flip side, if demand begins to outpace supply, then the price of oil will increase because that's economics 101, and vice versa. If we have more oil than we need, the price will go down. Why and how this happens is extremely important, and it helps us rejoin the story in the early 1970s. So, at that time, 
two important things happened. The first was the OPEC members pulled crude off the market in solidarity with Egypt and Syria in 1973. The second was when a man named Leo Melamed created an investment product on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or the Merck, to trade on the price of oil. What Melamed understood was that the only thing that mattered in trading was volatility. The OPEC maneuver created volatility previously unseen, which spelled opportunity for investors who could now gamble on whether the price of oil would go up or down. Something as important to the world economy as crude oil should have never been a casino bet, but here we are. So the one thing that changed from our fundamental understanding of how oil is priced on the market beyond supply and demand and the value of the dollar is that it became a speculative vehicle. Hold that thought. Running out our sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking Pro, Just Gen, period. So what goes into the price of gasoline, the price that we pay at the pump as consumers? If we think about the journey from the ocean floor or desert sand to the pump, it kind of makes sense. Remember, we're not talking about natural gas or the products that are made from that. We're talking about crude oil specifically. Natural gas is a different animal, though it is very closely related. For our purposes, we're just talking about the desert sand to the gas pump. First, you have to drill it, extract it from the ground, and that costs money. So those companies get paid. Now, very important before we move on. This price, right now, at this moment, is what you see quoted on the exchanges. So if it's $110 a barrel, that's how much it costs right at that moment that we pull it from the ground. Now we begin to add to it along the way. So then you have to transport it from the rig to the refinery where it's turned into something else, something called the distillate. Refineries will convert crude oil, which is essentially useless in its most basic form, into light, middle, or heavy distillates for use in various processes. We covered this in our peak oil episode, but you're talking about everything from jet fuel and automobile fuel to kerosene, home heating oil, and motor oil. These refineries also have to get paid. From there, the distillates have to move to storage facilities. So the transportation companies and the storage companies will need to get paid as well. Then it moves from the storage facility to a smaller distribution center or directly through a network of trucks and tankers that take it to gas stations, as our prime example, to be poured into your gas tank. The gas stations also need to get paid, by the way. And it's at this point that you're actually paying taxes on what you pump that go directly to the state that you're in or the federal government, always. So each step of the way, companies are getting paid for this process, and that's how the dollars and cents begin to mount. Prior to the inflationary bubble this year, there was a general consensus that the optimal price of crude oil is between 55 and $65 per barrel, meaning that at that level, there was enough margin for all of these players along the chain to make money. So, using an implied price calculator, if crude oil is priced at $65 a barrel, the price for a gallon of gasoline would be around $2.46. Remember, unfuckers, that this is just for the United States. The rest of the world typically pays more for gasoline, something that every idiot that puts a sticker of Joe Biden on a gas pump fails to understand. Okay, so just for a little context, by the way, in U.S. dollars, the price of gas in France is about $8 a gallon. In Germany, it's $7.50. And in Norway, it's $10. And Norway is a fucking massive petrostate. 
Do you think there are stickers of the king of fucking Norway and the gas pumps there saying, I did this, durr. Anyway, using the same price calculator at the current crude oil prices, we should only be paying 370 at the pump. So we still have some work to do to explain the difference here. Most of the difference is something called the crack price, and it's happening in the middle of the process that we just described. Cracking is an industry term used to describe the process of cracking crude oil from its base form into something else. Say crack again. Crack. Basically, the refining process. Here's where there is a slight bit of truth relative to the price woes at the pump. Because of the uneven recovery process, different parts of the economy are coming online in an uneven fashion. This translates into production issues at refineries because the demand for middle distillates has been even higher than normal. Middle distillates include like jet fuel, diesel, kerosene, and home heating oil fuel. Because of the resurgence of travel and the need to move more goods at sea and on land, the demand for these distillates has been higher. So refineries are running at full capacity, trying to manage the increases in crude supply to not only meet the demands of the consumer for gasoline, but other areas of the economy as well that are at the early stages of recovery post-pandemic. There's also a negative feedback loop to consider as well because transportation is a key element of the final pricing and diesel fuel is so expensive, transportation companies are adding a premium to their services as well because it's so expensive for them to fuel up just to deliver the very fuel that they're using. With this understanding of how crude oil is priced on the market and all the companies that have to get paid along the way, let's review the reasons that everyone tells us for high gasoline prices and dismantle them one by one before I send you off into the world to argue with your friends. Biden gave too much money to consumers, so we're spending like assholes. Okay, so this is basically a supply and demand argument. Essentially, we as consumers have so much money in our pockets that we're outpacing the world's ability to meet our insatiable needs. In Substack at unftr.substack.com, I've included two helpful charts to destroy this myth as a visual aid. Bottom line, demand for crude in 2022 is only now approaching where it was in 2019, prior to the pandemic. In terms of supply, I've included another chart that demonstrates that we're matching supply barrel for barrel to current demand. There's exactly zero gap between them. So if supply is meeting demand, and demand is even slightly less than what it was at the same time in 2019, what was the price of a barrel of crude in June of 2019? Surprise, surprise, it was $65 per barrel. Everyone is traveling again and living their lives, so it's our fault. All right, so travel has yet to reach the levels that it did in 2019, and it's beginning to cool due to high prices, as a matter of fact. So it was a relatively mild winter, and road trips look like they too will fall short this summer due to, of course, high fuel prices. Another negative feedback loop, so I call bullshit. Biden's war of words with the fossil fuel industry magically made prices go up candidate Biden might have said he would push to transform our energy policy to pursue a renewable future. But most of those dreams died when the Senate killed Build Back Better. And even BBB fell short of the dream. So this, again, is just utter bullshit. 
fossil fuel companies have tons of open leases as it is, and the Biden administration reversed its decision to halt new leases on federal lands. There is simply no truth to this allegation. The war in Ukraine, it's Putin's fault. To the extent that fear is baked into the prices, I can accept this. But the reality on the ground, however, is that Russia not only hasn't stopped pumping crude, it's killing it right now. Have we made it harder to pay for it? A little, but they've worked around it. And for the time being, they still have customers taking their supply of oil and natural gas. Now, this is going to change in the future due to new EU regulations and sanctions, but they haven't even begun to implement these changes. So right now, it's pretty much status quo. Again, there's enough supply globally to handle demand anyway, and we have plenty of time to ramp up production in the future if need be. The bottom line is that it has nothing to do with the current calculus, which is pretty much backed up by every U.S. and global energy agency that believe, quote, uncertainty is behind the rise in prices rather than actual economic factors. The uneven global recovery from the pandemic has impacted refineries and capacity. So it's China's fault? Okay, so this is the one that is partially true. Now again, go back to the crack pricing that we talked about before. Refineries are running at capacity to fill in the gaps for middle distillates. It's worth noting though, that there's profiteering here as well. For example, the adjusted quarterly earnings for Marathon Petroleum, one of the largest refinery operations in the world, are up two and a half times this quarter over last year to $2.6 billion. They've also bragged about stock buybacks, as most of the energy companies have done, which is a prime indicator that these companies are all flush with cash. If it was a true dollar-for-dollar dollar increase that was being passed along, their revenues would be up, but profits would remain relatively stable. In other words, they're charging a premium for cracking because they know that no one is looking. And with respect to China, China is still relatively dormant due to its renewed COVID lockdown policies. So all of these price increases that we see are without China's real participation. I shudder to think what it will look like when China comes fully back online. Biden's handcuffed U.S. oil and natural gas production by killing projects like the Keystone Pipeline. Biden's fault. We have no problem moving oil and gas around this country. We're the largest producer of both in the world. Keystone Pipeline is a red herring thrown out by conservative media to get you to look away from the real problem. So let's put it all together now. The dollar is strong and crude oil prices are up. This is illogical and it goes against all economic fundamentals. Supply is meeting and matching global demand. Global demand is slightly less than what it was in 2019 at the same moment when oil was $65 per barrel. Oil companies from drillers, transporters, and refineries are recording record profits. In fact, in an interview with CNBC at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Fatih Birol, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, said, quote, in the last five years, on average, the oil and gas industry made revenues of about $1.5 trillion. And this year, from $1.5, it will go to $4 trillion U.S. dollars, more than a two times increase in the oil and gas company's revenues. End quote. The war in Ukraine 
has not slowed down the supply of oil coming from Russia. Countries across the globe, including the United States, have released crude from their strategic oil reserves to backstop any potential gaps in supply. Okay, so it's not supply and demand. Mm, China's still closed, so it's not China. It's not Russia because they're still pumping oil and making money. It's not the dollar because the dollar is strong, so oil should be cheap. It's not Biden's war on fossil fuel because these companies are recording record profits. And it's not us because all the money they gave us during the pandemic is fucking gone. So I guess it's the oil companies then, right? Yes and no. I promised I would tell you who's to blame, so here we go. The oil companies are the beneficiaries for sure. And to the extent that they manage and run trading desks, they are part of the problem. So the real culprit behind high gasoline prices is Wall Street. And here's why. The bond market is in shambles. The stock market is as well. Right now, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America and others are chasing returns. And they've turned to the market of last resort and they're making a killing. They don't even have to increase the trading volume in the sector because they're the ones that name the price in the forecast. By forecasting the price, they essentially set the price. They don't have to lift a finger to move the market. Just appear on television and say the magic words. Who are they? Well, they are, for example, Bank of America. Well, we think, uh, depending on how the sanctions go in Europe, we could see uh, the European sanctions on Russian energy. We could see maybe $150 a barrel, maybe a little higher. Goldman Sachs. So we think Brent prices have to go higher, uh, another $20. Royal Bank of Canada. I mean, my expectation is that we're going to see crude prices continue to rise. I mean, or JP Morgan. JP Morgan predicts the nationwide average for gas could reach $6.20 a gallon by August. Now, remember from our peak oil episode, that these are the big named players, but there are others who trade on what's called the OTC, the over-the-counter markets. Trading desks owned by the actual energy companies themselves that are also placing bets on the price of commodities. That's right, so Chevron, Exxon, BP, they all have trading desks that trade on the very commodity that they own and control, and so they too participate in setting the actual price. It's a clusterfuck. They're pushing up prices because they can't find returns anywhere else on fuckers. And they're doing it because they can. They're getting away with it because they know that we don't know. And Congress is either in on it or they're too stupid to understand that they're getting snowed. You want to know how I know that? Sure. I am all ears. Okay. Here's just one small example. Just one of how everyone in Congress is acting in a different fucking movie. Literally no one on the same page or even looking at the same script. The New York Times reported that the Biden administration is thinking of announcing a tax holiday on gas. Basically, eliminating federal gas taxes to bring down prices at the pump, which some believe would reduce prices by a whopping five cents a gallon. But hey, it's something, right? Now listen to what the New York Times reported in terms of opposition to see how they don't get it right, Congress doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, and none of us know how to translate this. Quote, the White House will face an uphill battle to get Congress to approve the holiday, however, while the administration and some congressional Democrats have for months discussed such a suspension, Republicans widely oppose it. 
and have accused the administration of undermining the energy industry. Even members of Mr. Biden's own party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, have expressed concern that companies would absorb much of the savings, leaving little for consumers. Senator Joe Manchin III, Democrat of West fucking Virginia, fucking was my insertion, said this year that the plan doesn't make sense. End quote. So, okay, this is the federal tax on gasoline that goes from the consumer to the government and is theoretically used to fund federal highway programs. This is a budgeting farce, by the way, because it's not like there's a separate bank account for highways. It all gets washed into the federal budget. Anyway, Republicans say this undermines the energy industry, except that the industry literally has nothing to do with it. They never touch that fucking money. But how about that Nancy Pelosi? Concerned that companies would absorb this savings? What the fuck does it, how does that, how is she doing that math? Joe Manson saying it doesn't make any sense. This limited and feckless gimmick literally has nothing to do with anything. So I can't even understand why the fuck any of them would have a problem with this. But this is the level of incompetence that we're dealing with in Congress and why something as stupid as a gas tax holiday can't even get passed. Anyway, the answer is Wall Street, unfuckers. They're taking your money because they can't take it from the stock market or the bond market. Are the oil and gas companies profiting from it all? Of course, because that baseline price, the price of a barrel of crude coming out of the ground, ultimately goes into their pockets as well. But the reason that baseline price is so high to begin with isn't actually their fault. That's a head fake. It's Wall Street. It's always Wall Street. Congress isn't stupid. Its members are just in Wall Street's pocket. Oil should never have been allowed to be traded on an exchange. So when it comes to gas prices, remember. It's not your fault. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings. Like I said, this was a little longer than intended. I was going to do a topical cream, but I started writing. Shit started happening. I got angry started writing more things down. The point of doing this episode is because I went back to review the peak oil episode. And, you know, we talked about the dictator in Equatorial Guinea. We talked about the history of Leo Melamed and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And we talked about how the Eisenhower administration precluded the commodities exchanges from ever trading onions. So why can't they do that with oil and et cetera, et cetera. So we made all of those points in a very kind of long and, and meandering episode. And I think that episode is still relevant and still important because it, it helps dissect the market in general. And it helps explain why this global commodity should never have been treated as a currency that is on an exchange that can be traded and manipulated, right? There should be a core price value based upon economic fundamentals such as supply and demand and a baseline price where everybody does get paid along the way. 
And, and again, it, it, none of these episodes looks at the climate impact and the fact that we need to be moving from a, a fossil fuel economy anyway. The point of this is just to kind of just tear the wall down to really understand the mechanisms of pricing behind something as vital to every inch of the global economy as crude oil is. In fact, in that original episode, we even unpacked all of the different areas that it winds up, the different distillates, the, the packaging, every aspect of the global economy that is impacted by crude oil. And it's not that easy to take us off of the teat, so to speak. So we're going to have to keep feeding on it. And I know that there is a movement toward the renewable future and some countries are participating in it, some are not. But the fact is right now, we are taking the brunt of the actual market manipulation in the prices at the pump. And it's going to be a disaster come the midterm. So why are the Republicans standing up against this? Is something is like the gas tax or extreme profits that the, the companies are taking out of it. Why is nobody looking at Wall Street? Because the Republicans know that this is their best friend coming into the midterms. They don't want to see any relief on gas prices because this is the one thing that could deliver a widespread victory. I mean, bar none everywhere, maybe except John Fetterman is an outlier in Pennsylvania. But the Democrats are going to get fucking annihilated if these prices stay where they are. And you heard those clips of Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Royal Bank of Canada. And those are just the big guys. There were tons of clips that I had on the cutting room floor of the smaller desks and the smaller hedge funds and investment companies all talking about the same thing about how oil could reach anywhere between $150 and $200 a barrel. And it could also stay there for years to come because China isn't even fully online. And there is truth to that piece of the puzzle. But that underlying price shouldn't be anywhere close to where it is right now. All things being fucking equal, that price right now should be $65. Yes, crack pricing might be a little premium on top of that. So maybe you're looking at a 20% premium on top of that $65 that is impacting the price that eventually gets to the pump. But we're so far afield from any economic rationale that explains this that it's fucking perplexing that nobody is stripping down the fundamentals to look at this answer. But when you look at corporate media, they're in the pocket of Wall Street. When you look at the politicians, they're in the pocket of Wall Street. And that's why you have somebody like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, Jesus Christ, they are headed for absolute doom and destruction in the midterms if they can't get this pricing under fucking control. And she's saying that a federal gas tax holiday might wind up benefiting companies. So we shouldn't even look at that. I mean, I'll take five cents off at the fucking pump if it helps. What are we even talking about here? But she's funded by Wall Street as well. Don't even get me started on Chuck fucking Schumer. Chuck Schumer takes in more money from Wall Street than anybody, literally anybody in Congress. He's number one. He's a New York senator. Of course, he's number one. And he's a fucking shill for Wall Street. He always has been. So across the board, you see that nobody either gets it or they just don't care or they're being paid to look the other fucking way. So my goal here, because I didn't think I did enough in that first peak oil episode to really explain every single element that goes into the price that you pay when you lift the handle and you put that in your car. Right. So I wanted to add that as an addendum. So hopefully you'll look at these companion pieces or hopefully you listen to this one 
and then revisit the peak oil episode, and it all kind of makes sense in a larger context together. So bundle them if you want to get the full complete picture, but hopefully this standalone episode lets you know exactly what's happening with pricing. And that, I guess, brings us to uh, close to the conclusion. 99. Do you feel like that was a more cogent explanation, you know, stripping out the history of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and fucking, you know, dictators across the world and all their interest in oil? The breakdown of pricing from pulling it out of the ground to making it into your pump, does that sort of make more sense now? Yeah, and it made sense before, but this is definitely more straightforward, but it's good to have the context from the previous episode. I get so frustrated watching these pundits on TV. The news pundits are one thing, right? So you turn on primetime anything. That could be Fox. That could be MSNBC. That could be anybody. And you see it repeated in print media. You see it repeated on blogs. You see it repeated even on podcasts where people talk about very casually, oh, the war in Ukraine is pushing oil prices up. And it's almost like this accepted throwaway but nobody's going back and talking about the fundamentals. But when you when you listen to the business channels, to me, it's even more devious because you listen to Squawk Box, CNBC, or you listen to Mad Money, or you go to Bloomberg and you hear these pundits from these banks talking to some pretty smart interviewers that understand how global markets go. And they're relying on the exact same assumptions. Nobody pierces those assumptions to just look at the market fundamentals. But if you just go to the Energy Institute Association or you go to the International Energy Institute to look at how they prognosticate prices, they say all of these same things, that the fundamentals show that it should be X, but, quote, uncertainty means that it's Y. And this this thing, this uncertainty piece, beneath that, it's implied that uncertainty is related to What's China going to do next? What is the Biden policy framework going to do to destroy a renewable future or destroy the fossil fuel industry? The uncertainty implies that there is some sort of cabal based on, you know, around oil prices. Oh, maybe it's OPEC not releasing enough supply or lying about how much they're putting into the marketplace. And anytime somebody talks about, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, ExxonMobil is posting historic returns. That somehow gets translated into, and there you go again, attacking the fossil fuel industry. No, 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 no. Nothing changes for them. They pay their people. They have their equipment. They drill. The processing is that everything is the fucking same. The only difference is they were getting paid this. Now they're getting paid that. And that represents that, quote, uncertainty spread in between. It is pure profiteering. But that profiteering can only come from somebody setting the baseline price too fucking high. And it's Wall Street. It's always these fucking guys. I can't take it. I'm sorry. No, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. I mean, I am sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> we're sorry. My bank is sorry. God, it's so frustrating. Anyway. So the next couple of weeks, we've got some cool shit coming up. As I said, I got distracted by all the bullshit narratives out there, and I I felt compelled to put this piece together. We've got back-to-back interesting episodes. I won't reveal the first one because it's going to be a totally new concept for us that we're tackling, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and that will hopefully be next week. 
The week thereafter, it's possible we're going to have a, the first of a two-parter. It's possible. Only because I can see that my notes are starting to get a little bit unruly and we might have to break it in two, but I think it'll be worth it. So a few full-on fuckings coming up next. We are going to have another phone friend coming within the next, I would say, 60 days or so. There'll be a topical cream drop somewhere in between as well. But heeding the words that one of our listeners, I think it was uh, Patrick McGee, uh, wrote in about the feed getting to be to the point of diminishing returns, we're going to stay really focused over uh, the coming months to, again, only put out timely, really relevant, and well-researched pieces. So I hope you're excited for those, as I am. Remember, of course, the first two weeks of August, we are going to be on vacation. My guess is that you'll see the return of uh, one or two skits here in the future as uh, I start to get my sense of humor back. And um, and that's that. Don't forget, Substack has some of the graphs and charts that we talked about today. And Substack is always free. So go to unftr.substack.com to follow us there. And every Saturday, we'll send you the essays that the episode that week is based upon for the full unfucking or even the topical creams. We have some of the shorter ones in there. Quickies get the Substack treatment as well. So most of our content can be found there. As far as the transcripts go, for the interview features that we're doing now in Phone a Friend, we do have a full transcript that's provided for, for those. So again, our commitment to accessibility is this. 99, do you want to just talk a little bit about our accessibility? Because we haven't spoken about that in a long time. Accessibility is a huge priority for us as it is in our regular work lives. It's something I'm very passionate about because the internet should be an accessible place for all and the physical world. It all should be. So our website is fully accessible. We build that into the coding. We make sure, you know, anything we develop accessible. Our substack serves as a pseudo transcript for the main episodes. They are streamlined a little bit because we want it to be an equal experience. So if there's something that only translates to audio and it would be a confusing experience in print, we remove that. And with the phone of friends, which are, you know, these solid interviews, we have transcripts there. Show notes is something that I'm working on. With the turnaround time, it's a little tough with our small team, which isn't an excuse, nor is it acceptable that I, we don't have transcripts and it does plague me. So I want to get there. I'm trying to figure something out for that, but that's on the radar. And then we also have our musicless feed for people who either just don't like listening to the show with background music or might have some sort of auditory processing issue where the music and the, and the speaking at the same time is confusing. That's on the website. If you go to unftr.com accessibility or in the show notes of every episode, you can find the instructions to get that RSS feed if that interests you. So, and also please, if you're ever find, you know, come across something that doesn't feel accessible to you, send us an email, unftrpod at gmail, and I will address it ASAP. Yeah, so the the important part to us there is a recognition that we're not there a hundred percent yet. We're probably there. We're probably light years beyond what a lot of pods do, just because it it is something that's kind of in our DNA. It's something that we think about naturally. But show notes right now is our is our big miss. And like ninety nine said, we're going to work on that. But in everything that we do, we're fully committed to making 
the the feed, the work that we do, the essays, the website as accessible as possible. And it's why we don't gate anything, by the way. It's why we have no paywall for any content. The information we're putting out there should be accessible, attainable, and understandable to as many people as possible because we really are trying to move the needle and influence policy. I know it's small right now, but as we get bigger and bigger, these kind of things will get more important. And hopefully it pressures some other pods to to think in a similar manner and make this part of their protocols as well. Anyway, that's all we have for this week. Thanks for joining us once again on Unfucking the Republic. Anything you want to know about the show, you can pretty much find at unftr.com. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Oh, I thank you. I'll defer some humorous clip or offhanded remark to the great and powerful 99, who has a really good suggestion in her punch-in. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Unfuckers, your mission, if you choose to accept it, cover any I did that Biden stickers or let's go Brandon stickers with UNFTR stickers. Get them in every order of UNFTR coffee. If you email me and you send me your address, I'll fucking send you some stickers. This is so important. We ought to cover those stupid fucking stickers. That's so brilliant. Every time I see one, I'm mad that I don't have any on me. So now I have like a stack in my backpack. Brilliant. Thank you. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Onions and distributed by Shrek. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Our numbers are creeping up. You love to see it. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR, and maybe we'll be reading your name aloud at the beginning of the pod. Spoken by the great and powerful 99, by the way. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. And as we've said ad infinitum already on this show, read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. And remember, they'll always be free. Bye. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Example? Example? Okay, um, ogres are like onions. They stink? Yes. No. Oh, they make you cry? No. Oh, you leave them out in the sun, they get all brown, start sprouting little white hairs. No. Layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers? You get it. We both have layers. Ah. <sighs>